0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage.
1: Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro.
0: And I'm Chef Plum.
1: I don't know about you but the kind of cooking i want to do right now is simple and fresh just give me a handful of ingredients that shine and bonus if i am not filling the sink with multiple dirty pots and pans by the way i'm a busy woman with two boys so it'd be great if the dinner hour actually stuck to roughly an hour my boys are going here and there and everywhere and by the way The dog, turns out, is not going to walk himself.
0: Our guest this hour specializes in a kind of cooking home cooks really appreciate. And professional chef dads like me can get behind it, too. She calls it everyday magic. We're talking eight ingredients or less, one or two pot meals, and the recipes come together in fewer than 45 minutes.
1: Ali Slegel is a recipe developer and food writer. You've seen her work and recipes in the New York Times, Washington Post, and on Food52. She was also a cookbook editor at 10 Speed Press. She's the author of the book, I Dream of Dinner So You Don't Have to. Low effort, high reward, recipes. Ali Slegel, welcome to Season.
2: Thank you for dreaming of dinner. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me too.
0: i already started thinking about dinner, like I think about it all day long.
1: Right i feel Mm -hmm. like we think about what we're going to make as we're brushing our teeth so so we're we're in good company before we dive into your book uh we want to get to know a little bit about you this is very interesting to me and folks may not know this you're the person who opens the cookbook mail (laughs) for food 52's facebook live which i think is fantastic talk to us about that
2: experience because it was genius I think the people that truly watched that show were publicists to make sure that I got their books. (laughs) (laughs) So when I was at Fifty Two, there was that push of Facebook Live that was like, make as many videos as possible. Like, what's your video? And I just thought about like what I truly do every single week, which is I get tons and tons of packages of cookbooks. And it was kind of like a little bit of blues glues, a little bit of like, the unboxing phenomenon. um, And I would just open them and flip through them and say what I thought was interesting. And I did it for a while. I actually can't remember how long it was, but it it had a long run. Did you always love cookbooks even before having that position? Cookbooks were always in my life. My mom's library was like cookbooks more than novels, I think. So if I like pulled a book down from the shelf, it was a cookbook and I would read them like books. And then I worked at 10 Speed Press. I was an intern there when I was at college. And then I was on staff after I graduated as an editor. Working at a cookbook publisher, you think about books in a very different way. I loved all of that nitty gritty stuff that maybe is lost on the reader. And so then when I went to Food 52, it was like a way to geek out on cookbooks. That little Facebook live was like my way of getting to like look at the spine and like you know all that funny stuff that I thought was cool and maybe no one else did but I I like to blab about it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So there's a picture early on in your book of your Nona's biscotti recipe. It's on a piece of like lined notebook paper and it's splattered and stained and there's so many notes and scribbles that you, you probably couldn't even follow it anymore if you tried but it does show how the evolution of a recipe and and how recipes are never really final. Can you talk about this a little bit?
2: Sure. I will say that I stole this piece of paper from her house, and I didn't tell her. (laughs) I'm so glad you answered that,
1: because I was reading it last night. I was like, I wonder if Nona knew (sighs) this was
2: stolen. Yeah, she didn't know, and I didn't tell her it was going in the book. And then when she got a copy of the book, and she was flipping through, she kind of like didn't pay attention to that page. The person with her was like, did you see that? Like, Did you recognize that? She was like, oh, yeah, it's just my post-it in the book. Like, she thought that somehow her, her like, paperwork had ended up in the book. Just, like, you know, slotted that's in. That's funny. And then they're like, no, that's that's printed in the book. And she ha! she got such a trip out of that.
0: I have in my junk drawer in my kitchen a little stack of papers, very, very similar from my grandmother and my father, that are just paper clipped together. You think i would figure out a better way to keep them, but, eh, you know, that's all you need. They've lasted this long.
2: Exactly. I also, like... I read it really carefully to make sure there was nothing, you know, like rated R or like embarrassing <laughs> on the <laughs> recipe. You know, sometimes you like scribble someone's phone number or something on a random recipe. Sure. But the reason I wanted to include it is I think sometimes people think of recipes as instructions, which is true. They show you how to make something, but they think about it kind of like in an IKEA manual. So like if you follow these things, you will get a cabinet. If you follow these steps, you will get a pasta, which is true, but there are so many variables when you're cooking. Even like frying an egg. If someone followed my fried egg recipe, there are so many things that go into that process. There's the temperature of the egg, the size of the egg, the age of the egg, the type of salt, the type of skillet, the type of oil, how big your burner. I mean, it's just like, it's endless. And so I wanted to acknowledge that if you make my recipe, it might not come out how I made it, and even if I made my own recipe, it might not come out how I made it. And I think that's important just for acknowledging, like we're not trying to reach this one thing. We're not trying to make something how someone else made it once. We're trying to make it how it works in your own kitchen. And that felt important just in terms of like embracing personal flair and embracing what happens in your own kitchen, but also a lot of times I think when you have food photography, People are like, well, my dish doesn't look like that dish. And that's true for many reasons, but that's still okay. Like what's in the dish is just how it looked one time it was made. You know, how it looks in the book is not the perfect way necessarily. So I think just embracing what's happening in your own kitchen is really worthwhile.
0: Recipes are great guidelines. They don't have to be the Bible.
2: Exactly.
1: I also love that you just said, you know, what you make isn't necessarily going to look like the picture because I often look at recipe comments <laughs> because I find them, they're hysterical. I love when other home cooks go after each other like, you can't possibly bring an umami flavor with that. What are you, ridiculous? Or when people say, this came out perfect. It looked exactly like the picture. I'm just like, mine looked
2: nothing like the picture and it was delicious and my family polished it. Right. It's like the goal shouldn't be that it looks like this picture in this book. The goal should be that you ate it and you enjoyed it and everyone was happy and you moved on with your life. You know?
1: Okay, we're done. Thanks. Yeah, anytime. fantastic. <laughs> so fun. <laughs> one, of the, one of the many wonders of this cookbook is that you. I feel like you were speaking to me. It was no nonsense, but it was also incredibly entertaining. I love the wit in your writing, which we could talk for hours about that. But um, I wonder why you focus on dinner instead of I dream of breakfast so you don't have to. What is so special about dinner?
2: I definitely grew up in one of those households that was like, no matter what, you will eat dinner, even if you're not hungry, even if you're tired, whatever. Like We will come together and we will eat dinner together. So in my mind, I do find it like as a period on a day The day has ended, your work is over, and you just get to like sit down, maybe by yourself, but you get to sit down and have food in front of you. So I think there's sort of like a necessity level of dinner more so than breakfast and lunch sometimes. And I think there's a lot of stress around dinner because oftentimes you're feeding family and you're tired at the end of the day. You just had a lot of stuff going on. And so you have that compounding this moment.
0: I mean, dinner for me is a, like we said earlier, to start to show up. I start thinking about it when I get out of bed. I'm like, a steak would be delicious. And maybe for dessert, we'll have some more steak. That's a good (laughs) idea. Let's do that. So one part of your journey that was, I mean, I'm almost kind of jealous about because it's something I always wanted to do. And I just would have some, I don't know. I I love the idea of just traveling around in a van. And you did that. You had van life (laughs) for six months of your life, traveling the country, cooking out of this little micro kitchen in the van. First of all, tell me what was in the micro kitchen and where did you go and how was it?
2: The van life aspect kind of was a surprise, but we were originally going to just travel around the country in our SUV, which we've done before.
0: Not nearly as fun as a van.
2: Not as fun, but we have a cat that we wanted to bring this time. And like the idea of sleeping in an SUV with the litter box, like it like logistically Mm -mm. was not happening in our brains. So um, we got a van and outfitted it. There's a little spot for the litter box and then. In the back of the van, you open the trunk, and my boyfriend built these cabinets that pull out. And so there's like a work table, like a countertop, and then there's right. a spot for a camping stove. And then there's cabinets for, you know, utensils, pots and pans, um, pantry ingredients. And then in the van, there's a, a tiny fridge. And so that basically allowed us to eat vegetables, which what I learned the last time on a road trip was like maintaining. Green vegetables was important for you know stamina. Um, so we could bring vegetables and also we could kind of camp for more days on end. So we started in New York and we drove across the country to Seattle. and then we spent a couple months going down the coast. and then we came back.
0: So before we go forward, I have to ask the burning question that I know Marisol's dying to ask, and so am I. When you pulled over, you start making dinner, how many times has somebody pull up next to you thinking you were a food truck?
2: (laughs) 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 I really never? happened to be honest I think we were around so many RVs and I think more so the van is pretty small compared to like a sprinter van or an RV and so more people were just like what are you doing like you're living in that it's basically <laughs> a station wagon um wow and so we were like yes it's true it's it's a Japanese van so like the um driver is on the other side so there's just like a lot of things that really surprise people more so than that we are a food truck <laughs> I had this vision
1: of like the Scooby-Doo mystery machine, but like totally souped up.
2: That's exactly what it looks like. And people have actually yelled Scooby-Doo like from across the way to us.
0: You're driving cross-country, cooking out of the back of your van, solving mysteries. This sounds incredible.
1: If only those meddling kids hadn't gotten in the way, I would have finished this recipe. Damn you. Do folks now ask you about ways to cook? when you're not in a traditional kitchen, like on a hibachi or an open fire or a charcoal grill or or
2: something like that? Yeah, it's funny. I did a few videos like cooking out of the van for Food 52. And um, like our way of cooking out of the van is basically camping. It's like a camp stove. And then we happen to have a cooler fridge. But people really wanted like hardcore camping mm. recipes, like dried food and um, stuff like that, which I don't really... I have not experienced before. So there's a whole world of van cooking and camp cooking that I am not aware of.
0: Is there somewhere in the country you wanted to go specifically to experience the regional cooking flavors? Or what did you learn about American food and, and the cooking that made you think I could have only have learned that by experiencing it firsthand? Something that like YouTube couldn't have taught you.
2: So the goal of the trip, and really, I was curious about understanding how you cook in other parts of the country. So what is grocery shopping like when you only have one grocery store? What's it like in the winter when you there's no fresh produce? like Stuff like that. So I was curious about the struggles that home cooks have in order to complete dinner just for my own work and knowledge. It's important to me that my recipes can be made kind of from people all over the country. And I, I didn't like put it yeah. to the test. And so for this trip, I was able to see if like what I thought was possible in other towns and cities as possible. So I would say like eating local food wasn't super a priority and we were driving at a pretty fast clip. So I can't say I like got to taste like specialties of various places, but I do think there's something really special about like going to the place you hadn't planned. Like you're often surprised. It's often great. That one place in Wyoming was a diner And we ordered like eggs and bacon and hash browns. And then the woman was like, do you want a side of one pancake? (laughs) And I feel as though I've never been asked that before. And it was like getting one pancake as a side for breakfast is really just the way to go, I think.
0: Wow. Literally a side of pancake. Not pancakes, pancake.
2: Yeah, it was one like eight or nine inch pancake. And it was so good. It was definitely from a mix. Like it was very sweet and buttermilky, but just incredible.
1: (laughs) I like that because I'll often order something salty and then want a little, just a little savory, but I don't want to order a $15 stack of pancakes.
2: Sometimes you just want like the kid size pancake. Exactly.
0: I, I don't know anything about that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're listening to our conversation with cookbook author, Ali Slagle. Her cookbook is called, I Dream of Dinner, So You Don't Have To. Later in the hour, we'll get into some recipes and get tips from Allie for cooking beans, pasta, and rice. And how to buffalo, just about anything. That's right, we're turning nouns into verbs, you guys. It's coming up straight ahead. I'm Marisol Castro.
0: And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, we talk with Allie about how her family influenced her simple cooking style, how her short, witty recipe descriptions wink at the reader, and how home cooks can reframe dinner to take the stress out of cooking.
2: Dinner is also an opportunity for joy. And so it's kind of like how do you take that moment that we have every single day and make it as good as possible?
0: This is Seasoned. We'll be right back.
1: Our guest for the hour is food writer and now cookbook author, Allie Slagle.
0: Allie is a frequent contributor to the New York Times and the Washington Post. She was previously on the creative team at Food52. We're talking with Allie about her cookbook, I Dream of Dinner So You Don't Have to. Low effort, high reward recipes. It's the kind of cooking we're into right now.
1: Allie, earlier we talked about that now infamous biscotti recipe, the loose leaf page that is in your in your cookbook and clearly your, your nonna and your mom had a great influence on you. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about that. How and why did they shape the way you cook and what you cook?
2: Yeah, it's um I've been asked this a lot and it's a very hard question for me to answer. I don't know if any of you feel like this, but you know, hopefully someone when you were growing up cooked for you and for me it felt very mundane. Like it was just every day someone was cooking food, but I think It is the everydayness of their cooking that I wanted to kind of capture in this book that, you know, as a, someone who's developed recipes for their job, you're often like developing recipes, like you're creating this idea, but really it's about kind of the spontaneity and the immediacy of cooking for people every day that I wanted to capture here. So they, they're very straightforward people and cooks. Um, they won't waste time with like garnishes or oftentimes a side dish. Like, it's like we're making food and we're putting it on a plate and we're eating it, you know? <laughs> but at the same time, their food was extremely delicious, like so simple and so delicious and uncomplicated. They, they are those annoying people that people are like, well, How did you make this? And it's like, Well, it was salt and pepper. <laughs> And olive oil you know but (laughs) but i think there is something to that if you didn't grow up in a food family there is something to that sort of cooking that's worth sharing and worth writing about so that's kind of what i wanted to capture in this book
0: well kind of touching on that i want to give listeners a sense for how i dream of dinner is set up so the book structure is super traditional i mean there's chapters for different ingredients eggs and beans and pasta protein the list for the ingredients are not traditional at all you call for specific amounts and measurements in the instructions but not the actual ingredient list like other recipes would do why is that
2: when i first started cooking out of cookbooks when i was a kid i often would cook i would bake because i just like wanted sweet things so it wasn't like cooking for life um but no one taught me like how to how to work through a recipe like how to read it So I didn't understand that in the ingredients list, you have chopping instructions or prep instructions and even the measurements. I didn't understand that you're quote unquote supposed to do that first, like measure the thing, put it in a bowl, measure a thing, chop it. So when I would cook as a kid, it would say like, add the peas and then you'd go to the ingredient list and you'd see quarter cup of peas. And then I would measure Uh it. Right. So, um, That's just naturally how I cooked and also how my mom cooked. And then you don't have all these little meese bowls that you have to wash at the Mm -hmm. end. So I wanted the structure of the recipe to kind of capture that process, um, which I find to be a little bit more fluid. So the idea is that the ingredients list more becomes a shopping list. So you can kind of scan the list and see like, do I have this thing? Do I not have this thing? What do I need to go get? The other thing is like, authors always say you really should read the recipe through first. So by nudging the measurements into the recipe, it is sort of a forced hand that it really is good to read the recipe first. So the goal is then you kind of skim the recipe. The ingredient measures are in bowls. You can skim it and see what measurements are. Or if you don't read it through first, it's fine. You will measure something in the process of the recipe and you might not have enough. But I think like, I don't know, I'm sure you cook something where you're like, oh my gosh, I don't have the right measurement. And I think in that moment is when you actually start cooking for yourself and understanding flavors and substitutes. And that's when you can develop your own sense and confidence in the kitchen.
0: As a chef for 30 years, my rule of thumb is to always read down at least a step two. Well,
1: I was looking through as I was waiting for my tomato jam poached cod. Take that, Chef Plum to finish yeah. to finish last night. I was looking through your through your cookbook and I, I said out loud, Oh look at you, Allie, forcing me to read the recipe. And my boyfriend said, What are you talking about? And he looked at it, he goes, This is how they should be. I like this. This is how they should all be. <laughs> so you at least have two people who co sign to that that motive
2: it definitely was a risk. Some people are are very revolted by it, but I think you just have to try it. Just open your mind. Yeah. Um, I mentioned earlier
1: about the writing and how witty it is. And I think, Plum, you can attest to this. We've read countless cookbooks yeah. where there is a backstory or a, you Always. know some sort of something in there at the top and you take the opposite approach. You give us these footnotes. I did <laughs> the one about... From the recipe, creamed leeks and eggs, quote, to soothe babies and large adult children. (laughs) (laughs) From your omelets, quote, an envelope with confetti inside. (laughs) I mean, Ali Slagle, can I peel back your skull and poke around in there? Why this? How did you come up with these fantastic turns of phrase?
0: A mosh pit of creamy gooey beans? Let's go.
1: (laughs) Ship diving encouraged. (laughs)
2: It's just word soup, like swirling around up there. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm sure like some grammar people are like, this book is, again, revolting. But um, my my No, I'm a <laughs> former English teacher and self, self-promoted
1: self grammarian, and I I promote this 1000%. Thank
2: you. It was copy, edited, and proofread, so it's not that, yeah. Okay, so my, you know, I think headnotes really do have a purpose in many books, Um But I also think there are so many weeknight cooking books out there, quick and easy books out there. And I wanted to make sure that this book stood apart and and also really did its job. So I was sort of like obsessively focused on the goal of straight up making dinner. And when I thought about what parts of a recipe, like what parts of the structure of a recipe were essential, I kind of decided that a head note wasn't super essential. Like you could skip reading a head note and make the recipe and you would make dinner and sure you would understand maybe more about it if you had read the head note but you made a you made a great dish regardless. So for me I swapped head notes for kind of like these some people are calling them taglines um, like just short ideas about the recipe and really it's just to kind of like entice you to make the recipe which I think a lot of times you know, even experienced cooks, like they really just need inspiration and like a spark. And so my idea was that tagline kind of just like excites you enough to start cooking. Also,
1: I think to your point about dinner, you know, you worked a full day, you're trying to keep the humans in your life alive. And I know sometimes for me, it's the, I'm like, oh my God, I cook dinner. And I'm sure if I read something like a mosh pit of creamy gooey beans, I will mm-hmm. laugh and in turn laugh at myself and in turn feel like okay it's only dinner these are people i love let's just do the thing and laugh while we're doing it so thank you from the bottom of my cold black heart
2: i should also say that the book um, i mean really i was talking to another cookbook author this morning and she was i was like what have you been cooking she was like nothing <laughs> like we all have those moments but dinner is also an opportunity for joy. And so it's kind of like, how do you take that moment that we have every single day and make it as good as possible? And maybe sometimes as good as possible is some cereal and maybe it's something else.
0: Well, Let's talk about some recipes. Uh, you start the book with more than a dozen recipes with eggs. And these aren't like fried eggs or egg sandwiches or like breakfast for dinner type recipes. There's some really savory, satisfying dinners here. I'm thinking specifically of that coconut curry with swirled eggs. And as a professional chef, I love that. It sounds amazing. Coconut curry with swirled eggs. But what the hell is a swirled egg?
2: Um, So I was a geography major in college, which has very few um, real life applications, except for the fact that I am really interested in like certain either ingredient combinations or techniques that exist around the world. And so a beaten egg is oftentimes poured into a hot soup and makes sort of like this ribbon of eggs. So you'll see that in hot and sour soup in a Spanish garlic soup, in stracciatella. And so the idea basically is like a really simple, soft protein that you can add to a soup right at the end. And I actually did this a ton in the van. I grew up eating a lot of Lipton chicken noodle soup, Um, no chicken extra noodles. Um, And so I had a box of those in the van and I would warm that up with whatever sort of like green vegetable we had and then I would beat an egg and just pour it in at the end. And so I had protein and vegetables and it was like five minutes.
0: I feel like it just became a confessional.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> the envelope, the red box and the envelope. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You
0: know, doing the egg thing, we used to call ribboning. We whip it and then ribbon it in as we stir the soup, like an egg drop soup even or something like that.
2: Exactly. And it's cool because you can, I mean, this is like really granular, but the speed at which you stir the soup affects the ribbons. So if you... If you don't stir it, you actually kind of get sort of like this pancake, like a poached scrambled yeah. egg, um, which is also really delicious.
1: What about a soft-boiled egg? And first of all, are you the six, seven, eight, or nine minute-er mm-hmm. when it comes to your egg? And this could make or break the rest of this <laughs> the entire okay, ending conversation, this yeah.
2: yes. <laughs> so I am usually a 7 minute er. Phew. Okay. Is that okay? We're all good now. Okay. Okay, (laughs) I really feel as though I know it's just one minute, but six minutes. Sometimes the whites don't cook through for me. You get an A+. Okay, great. And then (laughs) (laughs) pass the test. Um, So I feel like soft-boiled eggs, I just... It's like it's kind of like a canned bean or a canned tuna. Like if I have them in the fridge, I know I will be okay. Like I know that I can make dinner and it can be delicious. And also it's like the perfect quick snack. I think like if I'm feeling very like so hungry, I can't even make dinner yet. I'll just like eat a soft boiled egg with some salt and you're good.
0: Lots of people suddenly became bean eaters early in the pandemic. I mean, it's an easy comfort food. I love beans what do you see as like the allure of beans and what are some easy bean-centric dinners that you like
2: i always have had canned beans around Um, i just feel like they're a great like in case of emergency protein but also a great protein when you're planning a meal because they're kind of like a great blank canvas in many ways like chicken and i think i mean there's always been so many heirloom beans that you could cook from dried but there's just so many opportunities to do things with beans So for beans, there's three techniques. Basically every bean I've ever cooked falls into one of these three categories. Adding crunch, which is basically like, don't worry about the texture of the bean itself and add other ingredients that contrast the like dense softness of a bean. Crisp the beans, which is like making their outsides crispy, using the starch on the outside of the bean to make them crispy, whether roasting or in a pan with lots of oil. And then stewing them, so just like letting them be soft things in soup.
0: Hmm. I puree beans a lot with a lot of things, and use it as a side dish, or I'll use it as like a almost in place of a sauce on a plate with a great like truffled white bean puree. It's beautiful with you know a simple roast chicken.
1: Mmm, that sounds delicious. Yeah. But we were d- these beans also figure into another section about pasta. Yes, that you have, and you go through your simple pastas. And I think many years ago, I think before the pandemic. It was one of those things where I was like, oh my God, I have hungry people to feed. And I literally saw cannellini beans and linguine. And I knew I had fresh herbs. And you you both have made a version of this, but talk to us about the bean and the pasta and how the magic is made there.
2: They're both interesting because they're both starches. So they actually can contribute a creamy texture. So using the pasta water, so the water that you cook pasta in, To help the sauce glom to the noodles is a a great way to kind of like make a sauce out of nothing.
0: What was that word you say? Glom? Glom.
1: (laughs) It's it's an official word. Okay. If it's not, I will call Merriam-Webster myself and tell them. It can be used as a verb. Wow. In this case. It gloms gloms.
0: to
2: the spaghetti or other I'm
0: going to use that five times today. That's my plan.
2: (laughs) Continue. Um, But I think too, it's like if you just throw in beans in a pasta dish, then you have protein.
1: You're listening to our conversation with Allie Slegel. Her cookbook is I Dream of Dinner So You Don't Have To. I'm Marisol Castro.
0: And I'm Chef Plum. When we come back, time-tested tips from Allie about chicken thighs versus breasts and why rinsing uncooked rice is a step that you can skip. And this tip is going to cause some controversy.
2: Not to, you know, toot my own horn, but the way that I made rice was the best way.
0: (laughs) You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back.
1: Welcome back to Seasoned, I'm Marisol Castro.
0: And I'm Chef Plum.
1: We're spending the hour with Allie Slagle talking about her first cookbook, I Dream of Dinner So You Don't Have To.
0: We love a good cooking hack on this show. So we asked Ali about her recipe for mushroom orzoto. Get it? It's a weeknight hack for a risotto-like dish using orzo pasta.
2: You know, if you think about the shape of orzo, it looks just like rice. So why couldn't you swap orzo for rice? and cook it in a similar way so the common way to cook pasta would be to boil some water put the pasta in drain it and then combine it with a sauce but in risotto you're stirring the starch the rice with the saucy ingredients and as you're stirring you're kind of like whacking the starch out of the pasta or the rice and making whatever is in the pot starchy and therefore creamy So in this recipe, you're making a mushroom stock with dried mushrooms, which are simmering while you're browning some fresh mushrooms. And then you add orzo and some aromatics and you um, kind of ladle in this dried mushroom stock as you go. One thing about um, dried mushrooms, for me that has always felt like a roadblock is you have to let them sit for a while to infuse the water and then you have to strain them to get the grit out of the stock and I use like have to in air quotes because I don't do that because if you just boil enough water you can leave the sediment in the bottom of the pot and just scoop the top part so for me like bringing out a strainer just to get like some sediment out of some water just doesn't feel worth it
1: and if Ali doesn't do it I'm not doing it either
0: Dried mushrooms are a great way to add a lot of flavor to something, too. I, I love that recipe. It really is. It's a great way to add flavor because there's so much stuff packed into those.
1: Okay. So, this one, this next question is going to really split me and my mother apart. Oh, boy. Because I grew up with rice. Like, if we didn't have rice next to our protein, it meant we were rich. And I will remind you, we were not rich. But my mother to this day says, you have to rinse the rice. You have to rinse the rice. Miriam, I don't have time for rinsing rice. You dedicate a chunk in your cookbook to greens and the rinsing of them. Can you please set the record straight?
2: I really hear the family feud because I worried that I would start a feud by saying in the book that you don't need to rinse your rice. Well, well <laughs> hello. So I took the matter very, I probably spent like two months deciding whether or not to say it. Like I really felt very strongly that I had to be careful about this topic. Um, so, and I don't think like, I don't rinse my rice because my mom didn't rinse rice is like a good enough answer when there's like science to say otherwise. Um, because all my friends are food friends and we find this thing fun. We spent one vacation in Vermont testing all different kinds of ways of cooking rice, various pots, various types of rice, various burner sizes, Bringing the water to a boil with the lid on, like we really we went we truly went for it. You were like the Mensa of chefs
1: that weekend in Vermont. It holy <laughs> smokes!
2: Not to you know toot my own horn, but the way that I made rice was the best way.
0: <laughs> toot toot. <laughs>
2: Yes. Yes. (laughs) And then I, and then I went on the rabbit hole of like, well, why? And I, I suggest some hypotheses in the book as to like the matter of stirring and and like a dry grain holds onto its starch more than a wet grain and stuff like this. But I will say if your mom or whoever wants to still rinse their rice, they should totally do it. But if, if you are nervous about making rice and you don't have a method, this is my method.
0: Perfect. So, Allie, we recently had a great conversation with Patty Heenich, and she introduced me to using the word taco as a verb. Like, we can taco things. And I was like, I've been tacoing everything now ever since she'd had this. And you use words like butter and olive oil as verbs, too, which I think is really fun. And also the word buffalo (laughs) is a verb to you. Uh, You buffalo an entire salad in the vegetable chapter. Can you walk us through this and give us some other non-chicken ideas for buffaloing? (laughs)
2: <laughs> sure, I do really like nouns as verbs. I just think it's fun and very not serious, and also made the copy editor and proofreader, you know, a little nervous sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about buffalo is it's basically hot sauce, a fat, an acid, usually lemon, and some garlic. So that basically is like could be a dressing, could be a sauce for many different things. So I like to do like a hot sauce butter shrimp is really delicious. Um, You know, buffalo is often made with franks, but if you don't have franks, Mm -hmm. you can use other hot sauces. Even like if you just roast some root vegetables, like, you know, a sweet, sweet potato is really nicely contrasted with the heat of the hot sauce. Great idea. Yes, it's a salad dressing in the book, or you could saute like some kale and put it in a grilled cheese with some hot sauce on it.
0: Kale with hot sauce, okay.
2: Why not? Wait no, but she said a grilled cheese with kale in it that has
1: uh, hot, the hot sauce. sauce yeah, I mean, so
2: think of like a kimchi grilled cheese, right? Uh-huh. Like a spicy, uh-huh. crunchy, gotcha. cheesy thing. So you could take raw kale, dress it in olive oil, hot sauce, lemon, garlic, and then put it in your grilled cheese, which I guess would be a melt now.
1: Mm.
0: Kind of sounds great. I appreciate buffaloing everything now.
1: So now you have two nouns that have become verbs for you. I can't wait. Plum, I can't wait. Tacoing and buffaloing. <laughs> This is another debate which I'm glad you've settled for me. Uh, you know, Allie, can we be best friends? Because I feel like all these culinary debates I have are now I'm gonna just say I do it because Allie said it was fine. I've been doing it my whole life, but chicken thighs. I'm sorry, chicken breasts, they have no redeeming quality. Boring. Even if it's in a chicken cutlet. I mean, even that, eh, eh. But I get it, some people are like, oh, the chicken thigh is hard to make on a weeknight,
2: to which I say, you're crazy mm-hmm. and you're
1: cooking it wrong. Talk to us about why the thigh over the breast And please tell us what schmaltzing
2: is. (laughs) There are no chicken breasts in this book at all because I just... You're here. (laughs) I, I understand that they're faster, but I also think they're really hard to mess up. And by mess up, I mean that they get too dry and they don't have a lot of flavor. So I think chicken thighs kind of like solve all of those problems. I also think like when I was first learning how to cook in college, I was always worried about like endangering myself with raw chicken There was this pressure to like cook chicken breasts perfectly so that they don't dry out but with thighs like you can just keep going just to make sure they're truly cooked through and they'll still come out flavorful and juicy so i think they're really worthwhile so my like go-to chicken cut would be a boneless skinless chicken thigh if i want to do sort of a longer endeavor i will go for a bone-in skin on chicken thigh The benefit of that is the bone adds some moisture, but also you have this chicken skin on the outside. Mm -hmm. And as that skin cooks, whether in a skillet or on the grill or in the oven, it liquefies and renders into the bottom of the pan. And that's what you that's chicken fat. It's also called schmaltz. Um, and you can cook many things in that. It's basically like a really savory, delicious, chickeny olive oil. So any way you use a warm olive oil, you can use that chicken fat.
0: Schmaltz is delicious. I love it. Mm. It's so good. I'm
2: starving right now, you guys.
0: (laughs) Just do a callback, throw it in with your beans. It's so good. It's so delicious. Even
2: like if you don't use it with the chicken thighs, if you save it and then like, fry a piece of mm-hmm. bread or a fry an egg in it. It's kind of like, oh, have I ever tried an egg? But you know, have I ever eaten yeah. this thing before? This is so good.
0: All right. So we got to talk about steak for one second. I got to jump in there. Marinating steak is a step that you think we can skip as well. I tend to agree 90% with you. Ooh. Why do you say it usually isn't worth it? And what should we do instead?
2: When I started grilling, I would follow a recipe and marinate a piece of kind of like a pricey piece of meat in a lot of ingredients, like a lot of really delicious, big flavor ingredients, like Worcester, brown sugar, whatever. And then I would sit and let it wait for overnight. Like that's a lot of time and advanced planning that's going on. And then you would discard the marinade because it had raw meat stuff in it. I just didn't make sense to me to like, discard all of these flavorful ingredients. And then when I went to grill the meat, All the sugars from that marinade has a tendency to burn on the grill. Preach. And also when you're marinating in a wet thing, a wet thing prevents browning. So you're not getting that like crisp char that you want. So you're kind of just like you're either getting a soggy piece of meat or a burnt piece of meat. This is hard and not it doesn't seem worth it. And maybe it's just like my grilling skills that I have not honed properly. But I was kind of like, why don't I grill the thing? without any of that on it with just salt and olive oil. And then if you want that, or so brown sugar, if you want that marinade flavor on your meat, you can put that on the meat kind of as a sauce afterwards.
0: Yeah, that liquid that gets trapped in there, it really does away with that Maillard reaction. It's just not gonna happen. It just, it steams instead of sears.
2: Exactly. Now, hopefully a little
1: less complicated, although that wasn't complicated at all. You do dedicate a portion of your book to probably the easiest fish to cook, which is shrimp it's forgiving. I always have a bag of frozen shrimp in my freezer at my disposal for when last minute cooking, but I need to zhuzh up whatever's in my pantry.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you buy frozen shrimp because I think oftentimes frozen seafood in general is a better bet. I also think I'm definitely being more mindful about meat proteins in general and how often I should eat them. And I've come to think of shrimp as like a special occasion kind of thing. Um, and with that, prepping them takes some time to do well, but I think is worth it. So the prep that I do is um, I usually buy shell on shrimp instead of peeled and deveined. Um, I oftentimes find that peeled and deveined shrimp at the store are kind of mushy and and a little like- Kind of They mealy- like have shapes yeah. that are not shrimp shapes. And but if you like, it's
1: true, there, yeah. if you
2: have, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> if you have a source for like beautiful peeled and deveined shrimp, you can go for it. But I don't. So I shelve them myself, devein them. And then the one prep that I oftentimes don't do is I leave the tails on. Um, yeah. Was that a gasp?
0: You finished and I'll tell you <laughs> what I'm thinking.
2: I grew up eating shrimp sh- tails. I think when you cook them hot and fast enough, they're like really crispy and very delicious.
0: Oh, okay, okay.
2: Um, so I think like it's worth a try. If, and, and also then you don't have to take the tails off yourself.
0: My rule of thumb, and I taught young cooks for years this, if you want me to eat it with my hands, leave the tail on. If you want me to eat it with a fork, take the damn tails off. It would make me crazy.
1: That's yeah, fair. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah. I feel like this wasn't nearly
2: enough time, no, but definitely, we are. We
0: still got to debate shrimp and steaks. We got more to go. We got more <laughs> to go.
2: If you want to take your tails off your shrimp, you totally can do that. <laughs> if you want
1: to rinse your rice, it's your funeral, but go That's
0: ahead right. and You're it the everywhere.
2: boss of your own kitchen, everybody.
0: 100%. Allie Slegel, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. It was fun. That was Alice Slegel. Her new cookbook, it's her first, is called I Dream of Dinner So You Don't Have To. Low effort high-reward recipes. Allie has dreamed up some delicious-looking recipes that you can find on our site right now. Lemon, pepper, chicken, and potatoes. Those are chicken thighs, of course, naturally. Skillet broccoli spaghetti. And the Cuban-inspired sizzled pork and pineapple. So easy, you can make it while living in a van. Go to ctpublic.org recipes. I'm Marisol Castro.
0: And I'm Chef Plum. Season is produced by Robin Doyen akin Katie Tolarski, Emily Cherish, and Catrice Claudio. To keep up with the latest on Season, follow at CT Public on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And we're at WNPR on Twitter, or just follow the hashtag SeasonCT on all platforms.
1: Thanks for listening, everybody. You can catch past episodes of Season on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts subscribe and never miss our conversations with people making great food and drink in our state and beyond see you next week